So tonight we're, we're rounding off the Feast and the Festivals, and I, I hope you guys have enjoyed this study. Um, it's, it's been something I've never taught on this before, so it's been a bit of a, of a, of a learning curve to jump in and study all this stuff, but, but, but it's really been helpful for me, and I feel like I've really grown a lot, so I, I hope you feel the same way. Um, as I mentioned, it's, it's uh, Pentecost is the festival that we're looking at tonight. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. And because of that, Pentecost, I was saying to some of the guys in the green room before this, Pentecost was a very um, one-dimensional thing based on my church experience and my church background and what was talked about it. And so it's been really helpful, and I hope it will be helpful tonight as we look at this to realize it's actually a much bigger thing, and it has kind of roots and tentacles that go out into lots of different places. So tonight we're going to be kind of trudging through a lot of text and jumping around and back and forth. So I'll, I'll have the text up on the screen, but again, it may kind of be a lot, but hopefully you guys can kind of stick with me for it. Um, as I've done every week, let me start by reading a dictionary entry. Uh, this is by the Lexham Bible Dictionary, which is a wonderful uh, Bible dictionary, um, giving a description on what the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, and we'll talk about that. The de- uh, this is how they define it. Um, Pentecost is an annual harvest festival. It occurs seven weeks after Passover. That's what we did Passover last week, right? No, we didn't. Yes, we did. Okay, I'm mixed up. So it occurs seven weeks or 50 days after that Passover festival. It became an important Christian holiday after God poured out the Holy Spirit upon the Jerusalem church on that first Pentecost after Christ's resurrection. Then he goes on to say, Leviticus 23, which is, I think, what I've got up here. Leviticus 23, 15 through 21, instructs the Israelites to hold an annual one-day festival, seven weeks or 50 days after Passover. And the Greek word for 50 is where we get the word Pentecost from. That's kind of where we get that from. Uh, This festival included extensive sacrifice, Many, many things that some of them you have got kind of highlighted up there, you can see. At Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks, Israelite farmers would start their journeys toward Jerusalem to present their first fruit offerings. In Jewish tradition, Pentecost retained its connection with the annual harvest, but this is during like the second temple era. So meaning the temple has been destroyed. They're in uh, exile. Uh, Protestants often refer to that as the intertestamental period, the period between the Old and the New Testament. During that time, this harvest festival, which is all it was, we've talked about this a little before, that God tended to like map onto natural agricultural festivals, some sort of theological significance. And somehow during this period, Um, It also became associated with a covenant, meaning the Sinai covenant, a covenant renewal festival. And it was a celebration of God giving the law, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the laws that came with it. So it, it sort of got attached to the Mount Sinai experience, giving of the law, entering into a covenant with Yahweh. So it was kind of a like a marriage renewal thing, right? Couples say their you know, vows again or something like that. That's kind of how they started to see Pentecost. It was this celebration of this covenant that they had entered into with Yahweh. In the middle of the second century BC, Pentecost had become a covenant renewal uh, celebration 
At some point in the Greco-Roman period, the festival became primarily a celebration of the giving of the law, and it ends there. So um, it, it's linked back to, so I want to kind of jump to a couple different passages here. And as we're looking at some of these, try to store away some of these details because it's kind of like a bunch of puzzle pieces. When we get to Pentecost, a lot of these puzzle pieces are going to go, oh yeah, oh I remember that, oh I heard about that. So it's, it's in their mind, um, it recalls them to the Sinai experience. And of course the most significant thing that happened at Sinai is the presence of God came down, if you remember, on 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 top of, upon the mountain. And if you remember the story, do you remember the kind of um, phenomenological things they saw and experienced and all that when God's presence came? Um, if you even look in here, there are a couple things. Uh, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it. Um, it says the whole mountain was trembling greatly. Um, it speaks of, I think it's, might be a little later. Um, it speaks of uh, fire, God's presence coming as fire. And this is called a theophany or this sort of appearance, God making himself physically present in some way. And it's very common throughout the Old Testament that with, with God's presence or his glory comes fire and it comes uh, violent winds or shaking or that sort of thing. So kind of store that away. That's attached to this holiday is that whole kind of picture in their mind. Um, let's jump forward. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time right away in the Old Testament. Let's jump forward to Acts chapter 1. This is what many of us are familiar with, this experience where the disciples of Jesus right at the end of his 40 days post-resurrection, but prior to the ascension, we read this, Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, Jesus staying with them, he ordered them, do not depart from Jerusalem. So stay in the capital city. This is where God's presence is in the temple. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is a few days prior to Pentecost. And then the, there's the ascension experience. Um, well, yeah, we'll just read this. Verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive, and here's the promise, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then this will be the function of the purpose of it, and you will be my witnesses. And then he gives an interesting geographical thing that we're going to follow a little bit here. In Jerusalem, we know where that is. Judea and Samaria. Now, why does he mention those two? Samaria was the capital of the northern apostate tribes, the 10 who were scattered. Judea, this is the capital of the southern tribes. So he's saying the southern tribes, you're going to go to the northern tribes location, at least where they used to be, and to the ends of the earth. So let's look. I want to jump down to chapter 2 because this is where the event actually happens and kind of get some setting here. 
So it says in chapter two, um, when the day of Pentecost arrived, can you see that? Okay. Is that large enough or no? It's good. Okay. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, now this should cue you off, make you think of something. There came from heaven, as in like coming down, a sound of a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. It says, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and it rested on each one of them, which is to say it was, it was divided up. It wasn't a one location thing as it's been in the past. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. <clears throat> then it sort of almost like a drop down expands. When was it that they spoke in tongues? In other, tongues just mean languages in this. When was it that they did that? And then it gives the description now. There were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. Now listen carefully to the description of these Jews. They were devout men from every nation. Now, why are they from every nation in, in Jerusalem? Festival. This is one of those hog festivals, the travel festivals, the foot festivals. They've come from all these different places under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? And then it gives the Parthians, the Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. But it says, but they were all Jews or proselytes, uh, Cretans and Arabians. Um, so we get kind of the context. These are all ethnically Jewish, right? They're ethnically monolithic, <laughs> culturally extremely diverse. They're coming from, and it's, it's not accidental, the list that he gives. And it, he's actually linking into something that we'll go to here in a minute. But he's saying these are ethnically monolithic Jewish people, but they, they sound like all the nations because that's where they've been living. We'll talk a little bit about kind of that, how that was and that sort of thing. So let's go back a little bit more for the Old Testament context. Let me jump to Genesis chapter 10. And again, we're kind of bouncing back and forth, but hopefully we'll make some connections here as we go. Genesis chapter 10 is what's called the table of nations. And this is a list of, so after the flood, it says, these are Noah's sons and these are all the, this is the Old Testament's way of explaining why are there different people groups? And there are 70 nations listed. Okay. Depending on how you parse, there's like two names that it, it could be 72 because you can't decide if it's one name or just two names put together, but 70. Okay. That's sort of a key number. Store that number away. Okay. The table of nations in, in the scripture is the 70 nations. So right after the, the table of nations is listed, we have the, we have the Babel event 
And you've probably heard that. You remember that one. So in chapter 11, we get the situation of the Tower of Babel. Now, Israel, we should notice, Israel's not mentioned at the Table of Nations. Why is that? Yeah, Abraham's not even born yet. <laughs> it doesn't exist at all, okay? God's going to pick one, uh, as it were, dead man and dead woman from, that, from, from these nations, meaning they can't produce life by dead. <clears throat> but So we have the Table of Nations. Chapter 11, this is the event of Babel. And of course, you probably know this story. And essentially what's wrong in this event is they, they build, essentially most scholars think it's a ziggurat. It's, this, it's, it's a temple complex. And what you do with the ziggurat is you call down a God to live in it and you have control over the God. So that's essentially what they're trying to do. He's also told them to spread out over the whole earth and they say, no, we're staying here. We're going to build, build a ziggurat. And essentially we're going to call a God down and control. That's essentially what they're doing as a judgment. Of course, we know the story. He confounds their languages. So now these, these people who had, were told everyone had one language. There was sort of one culture. There was this monolithic element to humanity. God's judgment is to disperse them. And he confounds their languages. They begin uh, not being able to understand each other. And so they cannot complete the project in this way. Now, let's look at, um, and, and then of course, it's the very next chapter that he says, he picks out, he goes to all of these nations. Oh, and, um, and he he picks out Abraham and he says, from you, a virtually dead person, I'm going to miraculously create a, a new people. But the question you have to ask is, what, what happened at the, at the uh, Tower of Babel? Something to the biblical authors, something more was happening here. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, the author is telling us what, what went on during this judgment. Because he confounded their languages, but there's something deeper, darker, even than that. And the author writes this in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. And it says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided up mankind, when he fixed the borders of the people, okay, that's referring back to Babel. How did he do it? He, he fixed them or set them up according to the number of the sons of God. Now, if, depending on what translation you have, if you have like a NIV, um, there's a few other ones, it'll say the sons of, of Israel, which for multiple reasons is not a good translation. Number one, Israel didn't exist, as we just talked about. Abraham doesn't even exist yet. <laughs> and the oldest manuscripts we have, which come from the Qumran and the Septuagint, they, they have this reading, sons of God. This is the oldest reference. And it, you'll see it starts to make sense. He says, but Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, or that's Israel, his allotted heritage. Um, oh, this is one, this is talking about some other gods that they, I won't go into that. Um, so this is what's going on. Now you might kind of think like, well, th that's sort of just a weird reading. Maybe, maybe most Jews didn't understand that God divided up the people according to the number of the sons of God, and, and he determined the places where they would live. Well, Paul did. Paul goes to the Areopagus. He goes to Athens, and he's speaking to them. And in his speech, listen to what he says, and listen to how much of this sounds like Deuteronomy 32. He was very well aware, aware of this. Paul says, the God who made the world, and he's speaking to non-Jews. These are Athenian philosophers, 
of the ruling body of the city-state of Athens. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Here it is. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. So that's, that was the purpose and the somehow that they would get back to him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So Paul held to this worldview. He was very well acquainted with the Old Testament. He understood this is what happened at Babel. There was something significantly bad that happened to humanity at the Babel event. Now, what, what went wrong? Because the Babel event was a judgment. Essentially, what God did at Babel was he said, you don't want to follow me? Fine. You know, it's, it's almost like the Romans one passage where it says God turned them over to their own sinful ways. Do you remember that passage in Romans? It's sort of like that. He's saying to the nations, you want to do it your way? You want to do the Frank Sinatra lifestyle? I did it my way. Go right ahead. And the language that's used in scripture is he disinherited them. And then he put over them the sons of God. The sons of God are his heavenly family, uh, his non-physical imagers were his physical imagers. He put them over the nations. Well, you might think, so what went wrong? Because this was a judgment. Well, we can go to places like, and again, we've talked about some of these before, but it's good to, re to make these connections again. Psalm chapter 82 is reflecting on what went wrong. And the psalmist says this, God has taken his place in the divine council, meaning he's with his non-physical imagers. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And then this is what he says to these created beings, these spiritual beings, these gods. You could, you know, again, think of small g. <laughs> How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. This is letting you know what their job description was by the inverse of it, by saying what they didn't do. Uh, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. That's a description that Old Testament uses about those who do not know God, who have been deceived. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then there's a really interesting statement here at the very end, something the psalmist says, saying, saying to God, arise, O God. This is Yahweh God. Judge the earth, for you shall, what? Wow. The 70. The nations that he disinherited, right? That he divorced essentially. He's saying, you're going to re-inherit them. Well, how is he going to do that? <laughs> exactly. What's, what is the plan for that? How is he going to re-inherit the nations? Well, let's just keep going in Israel's history. 
Think a little bit about what, as Israel goes on, Israel has the covenant with Yahweh. How, how well does Israel do in keeping the covenant? Yeah, miserably, right? Just horribly. As a result, we know the kingdom breaks up, right? Remember, the, there's the northern 10 tribes, the southern two tribes, um, Judah is down below, Israel is up above, and they, they keep their uh, representative leader, the king in each nation, the north is apostate, but they keep leading the people into wickedness, into idolatry and so many other things. And so as a result, God sends prophets and says, you're going to be judged and the judgment is going to be foreign nations are going to come in and, and take over, destroy. It's going to be awful. And so the north goes first, 722 BC, the, the south goes in 587 but something happened about the methods of what these nations did. The southern nation, we'll talk about that one first, though it happened later. This, this is Babylon. Babylon comes and they take the two southern tribes. Their method of taking over looked like this. They would go into a country, whoever they took over, and they would assess who are the best people here, who are the smartest, the sharpest, the strongest, and I'm just going to take all them back to the headquarters. Okay, that's their method. Assyria, who took over Years before the Northern, they had a very different method. They said, I'm going to take 50 of you and I'm going to distribute you all over, but then I'm going to bring in 50 people from somewhere else and 50 people from somewhere else and 50. So basically the way I'm going to keep your nation weak is you're going to be scattered like seed. So you can't come together. You're going to be one tenth of a population everywhere. <laughs> You'll never have the majority. Does that make sense? So the Assyrians and this plays into the big picture here. This gets us, I promise, to Pentecost. <laughs> the Assyrian methodology of taking the 10 tribes and scattering them was uh, a, a great loss. It, it, it was something horrible. It was something that, that was a bigger challenge for them to maintain their Jewish identity as this happened to them. And what's really fascinating is the way in which they did this. Um, in fact, let me, let me go to, let me show you a picture here. This will kind of give you an idea. That's, you probably can't see the words, but you get the Mediterranean world there, right? This is the known world at the ancient time, okay? According to the ancient Near East, this was the known world. When they referred to the 70-ish, this was the world they're talking about and thinking about in their mind. The, the uh, northern tribes, the 10, they're scattered in all all of those locations, all over, okay? Um, and as they are, let me see if I can pull this up. Um, they're there. People will oftentimes speak about, uh, have you heard this phrase that the 10 lost tribes? You, you've maybe heard that phrase. And, and there's a lot of goofy internet stuff wrapped around the whole the lost tribe stuff, a lot of goofy things. Um, the 10 lost tribes, as it were, are not lost. They, they come back into play. And then we, we have all of these different, let me actually type this up here. I, I didn't have it up here, but I'm just thinking of it. So I wanna, um, see it's Jeremiah um, 31, 31. Okay, so <clears throat> they're scattered like seed everywhere. And the prophets start saying things like this, and everyone's thinking they're gone, they're just done. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house 
of Israel, that's the north, and the house of Judah, that's the south. Not like the covenant, meaning the Sinai covenant, that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And then this is kind of the key part here. Um, <clears throat> went too far. I will put my law, so you think of the stone tablets, he's contrasting, I will put my law within them. Stone tablets were within the ark. I'm going to put them within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. Because think about it, there's lots of Israelites who were apostate. They didn't know Yahweh. <laughs> He's going to create a people which every person who's a part of the people knows Yahweh, knows God. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, so let's go back to Genesis 2. Let me see if I can find that here. Here we go. Acts, Acts chapter 2. And let's walk through this and then let's start connecting some dots. Okay? <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues. Now, what's really interesting, the word divided, scholars will tell you this. We don't see it in English. The word divided is the exact same word that's used in um, the Babel account. Uh, excuse me, of the Deuteronomy account when he divided up the nations. And it's kind of a unique word. What, what commentators say is the careful reader, as soon as they hear that word, they're thinking to the time when God judged the nations and broke them up and they were divided. Um, <clears throat> divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages or tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now here's, here's one of the key parts. <clears throat> now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from where? Every nation, this is the scattered tribe. These are the scattered tribes. And because of a festival, they all come back to Jerusalem. It says, um, and at the sound, multiple uh, came together and they were bewildered. This is the word that scholars will say, this is the exact same word that's used in the, um, is it, I think the Babel account as well, when it says, they were bewildered and not knowing what to do sort of thing. So he, he's linking uh, these things to, this, to these other accounts that they know. Um, and they were astonished, aren't these all Galileans? And then Luke, the author of this, does something really interesting. He goes here, I won't read all the names again, but do you know what names he reads? There are people from, and then every name that you see up there is what he refers to. It's not exactly the same as, as the um, account that we have in the Table of Nations, but it maps onto it. 
What he's saying is this, and this is what I think is just so amazing about God's activity in our world and even in our own lives. 3,000 Jews, we're told a little bit later, 3,000 Jews hear this message of the gospel. They accept Jesus. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then where do they go after the festival? (laughs) They go back to the nations, to where all the nations are. And they become these little cell groups, these pods. These are spirit-filled Jewish followers of Jesus. And they are now, they've been seated in the nations. And what's so amazing is God took something that was a horrible judgment. (laughs) Them being sent, spread like seed that's used, like, oh, that's horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. And yet God uses it to start reclaiming the nations. The process has begun of reclaiming the nations. And then Paul, the apostle, what does he do? He says, I'm going to go visit all of them. (laughs) And he goes and he visits and he disciples and he builds larger churches and and he helps them get order and set up. And he's, this is why Paul has this deep, deep desire to say, I have to go. I have to go because he knows the Deuteronomy 32. He knows. In fact, if you read in the book of Romans, if you've ever, I think it's, uh, I think it's chapter, I think it's chapter 11. Paul says, there's been a hardening of the heart of the Jew until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) Apparently there's some point which the fullness of the nations are accomplished. And then there's this return of the Jewish people to Yahweh. It's fascinating. One thing that um, Paul Paul says, uh, so this was the, what you're looking at right there. That was the known world to the ancient Near Eastern person. You get to the first century period, they would say, they know a little bit more. Let me show you a map that just, I think it has it in here. In fact, can't find, oh, here we go. Can you see that? Um, What's included on this map that isn't on the other one is uh, Tarshish on the far left. Tarshish is one of the sons named in the table of nations one of the 70. And in this time period, the, the, the extent of the world they knew, and if you remember, do you remember the location that Paul is always dying to go to? It's, it's not, not, not Rome, it's beyond that. Spain. He wants to, well, what's in Spain? Tarshish. And why is, why is Paul, why do you almost get the impression that Paul thinks we got to hurry Jesus is coming back soon, right? Don't you get that impression? He sort of thinks Jesus is going to return. Yeah, because he knows once he gets to all of the nations, the fullness of the Gentiles, Christ will return. I'm on a short time period. Little does Paul know the world is so much bigger. The task is still there. The task is and has been given to us. I think about how Paul did think about this idea of God can take something like the scattering of the Hebrew people and actually redeem it. Paul says these words in, um, no, let's see here. Philippians 1.12, I think it's, here we go. Philippians 1.14, Paul views this about himself. And I think this is a point of application for us. 
He says, I want you to know, he's writing to the church at Philippi brothers, that what has happened to me, now what's happened to him is he's in jail. What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It seems like this would stink and be horrible and be counter God's plan for my life. So that it has become known through the whole imperial guard, the message of the gospel. The nations from Rome, because they've imprisoned me, now I have the ability to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the whole imperial guard. And guess what's going to happen if one of them or two of them become a believer? Where are they going to go when their service is done? They're going to go back to the nations, and God is going to continue ticking away and reclaiming. And this is what Paul constantly says in scripture is that Jesus has taken the power and authority away from the power structures and authority that ruled the nations. He's constantly getting at that and saying, God will re-inherit all the nations. And that's us. I'm not Jewish. I'm one of the re-inherited nations called into a family. One who was once far, Paul says, but has been brought near. Once I had a title above my head, not my people. That's what God called me. But now he says, now I call you my people. He's, he's going about doing this amazing things. And see, Jesus even hinted at it. Do you remember Jesus' ministry? Do you remember one time he said, why do, you, why do you suppose he picked this number? He said, now after that, the Lord appointed 70 and he sent them out. Why do you suppose he chose 70? The table of nations. Jews know that right away. They would have a question, wait, you're choosing 70? What does that mean? Because Jesus said things like this is, you know, first to the Jews, second to the Gentile. Paul echoed that. Jesus is giving hints all the way along. The biblical authors, they're giving hints. When you read the gospels and it says Jesus went through Samaria and there's a Samaritan woman Jesus talked to a Roman guard and he says things like, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. He's constantly having these touching points of letting them know it's bigger than just one group of people. Like I said to Abraham, like Yahweh said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Those who bless you, I'll bless those who curse you, I'll curse. But through you, I will bless all the nations, everyone. This is the fulfillment. So what's happening at Pentecost is the question. <laughs> Um, it's much bigger and much deeper. This is the fulfillment of what was talked about, what was hoped for. People were, were, were perplexed by it. How could God possibly reclaim the nations? The Northern tribe is scattered. It's messed up. <laughs> and that's the very thing he uses. And I think a point of application for us as we think about Paul's words, as we think about just how God works, <clears throat> I wonder if you were to think about what is what are some of the most shameful things of your past? What are, what are some of the most hurtful things that you've walked through in your life? Things that it, it, it doesn't seem like there could be any redemption for them at all. The question that I think this poses to us is, is it possible? Is it just possible that God could actually take the worst thing that has ever happened to you? The worst and somehow redeem it to actually expand his kingdom? It's at least possible. <laughs> and I think that needs to reorient how we move forward in our lives, how we think about and process 
past wounds and hurts, things that we have done ourselves or things that have been done to us that we think, well, this is, it, it's just a darn shame and it, it's, it's worthless. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe God has the ability to bring things that we sing in songs like beauty from ashes. <laughs> maybe he's really the God who's able to do that sort of thing. And see, Paul sees, as Paul looks and thinks about Pentecost and what happened in Jerusalem at Pentecost and the giving of the law, Paul sees very clear connections. Because remember, Pentecost, the original one, was this celebration of the giving of the law, the tablets, right? Listen to what Paul says here. We are beginning, uh, sorry, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation for you? Or from you, he's, he's defending his apostleship here. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts. Well, that's prophet language. To be known and read by all. People are reading you. <laughs> They're reading your life. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but written with the spirit of the living God, not on what? Tablets of stone. That's Old Testament Sinai language. It's not written on letters of uh, tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul sees a very direct connection. He's saying what happened on Pentecost was the fulfillment. A law was given again, but it wasn't on stone. It was actually written on your heart. And the spirit came down with fire and all that stuff, but it didn't go into a building. It went into you. <laughs> and so now you have to ask a hundred questions. What are the ramifications of that in my life? What are the ramifications of the fact that I am, I am a mobile temple, that the spirit of God is inside me, changing me, changing my will and my affections and all these sorts of things. And that I have this, ultimate call to be his witness. That's what Jesus said, right? Wait for the spirit. He's coming here to Jerusalem. And when he does, you're going to have new power for what purpose? To be my witness to who? The nations at the end of the earth, he says. Um, in fact, let me, let me read that passage for us. I could find it. Well, I'll just, I'll just, I think I've got it here. <laughs> he says, um, Acts chapter one, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here's my last question for us. Where are the ends of the earth? According to this. Right here. <laughs> From Jesus' perspective, as he spoke to them, the ends of the earth would have been the furthest point from him. And that's us. That's right here, right now. And this, this gets to our call as followers of Jesus. And again, especially as we're approaching this Easter Holy Week season, I think it, it, it's really challenging me to say, in fact, we had a conversation today in our, in our pastor's meeting, and Pastor Deary was really challenging us and asking and saying, are, are you having conversations with people who don't know Jesus? Or are you only having conversations with people who know Jesus? Like, are you being intentional? Are you praying even about, God, would you give me an opportunity 
to just somehow have a relationship with someone who does not know you yet. Because that's what Pentecost is all about. That's what the story of the Bible is all about, is that we're his witnesses, his ambassadors, to go to all the nations and to announce he wants to reclaim you. There's nothing better than that. Your God, the most high God, he wants you back. <laughs> that's a message like none other. And that's a message that we talked about earlier that we, we, we do in word and in deed. And over these next few minutes, the deed we're going to do is a proclamation, it's communion, that the most high God wants people back. And he has taken all authority and power away from any force that was corrupting or bringing compromise or bringing any sort of chaos and evil. And Jesus has been given the name that's above every single name. And it's at his name that every knee will bow. It says, every knee in the heavens, those rebellious beings, and on earth, and even under the earth. He's preeminence in the name of Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song. And I'll ask you to go to one of the stations in the room. And I would encourage you to view your action, your behavior, as that proclamation of a witness. You're declaring Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again and reclaim us. And isn't it wonderful to think, I, I'm one of those reclamation people. So <clears throat> take one of the elements, hold it during the song, and then when the song's over, we'll all take the, the elements together, okay? Would you please stand if you're able? <clears throat> This evening, we, we make a proclamation. I love the lines that we just sang of, God is running after me. And that's, that's the message of, of Pentecost, that God is running after, and he uses people to do it sometimes, but he's pursuing us, he's reclaiming us. That's a beautiful message. And the fact that he would go to this extent to do it, that he would actually sacrifice himself in the person of Jesus, to say, that's how much I want you. That's how much you're worth to me. I remember someone once saying, in a world where something is based on what someone will pay, it's nice to know I'm worth one Jesus to you. So let's take the body broken for us. And the cup, his blood shed. Heavenly Father, thank you for my family here. Thank you that because we stand in Christ, we literally are family. Help us to grow up into what you envision for your family. Thank you for the glory that awaits us, which Paul says, no eye has seen and no ear has heard what God has in store for us, his imagers. And so we lean into that, God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.